Book Four, Chapter Three, Amelia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Amelia, by Henry Fielding, Book Four, Chapter Three, containing wise observations of the author and other matters. There is nothing more difficult than to lay down any fixed and certain rules for happiness, or indeed to judge with any precision of the happiness of others from the knowledge of external circumstances. There is sometimes a little speck of black in the brightest and gayest colours of fortune, which contaminates and deadens the whole. On the contrary, when all without looks dark and dismal, there is often a secret ray of light within the mind which turns everything to real joy and gladness. I have in the course of my life seen many occasions to make this observation, and Mr. Booth was at present a very pregnant instance of its truth. He was just delivered from a prison, and in the possession of his beloved wife and children, and, which might not be imagined greatly to augment his joy, fortune had done all this for him within an hour, without giving him the least warning or reasonable expectation of the strange reverse in his circumstances. And yet it is certain that there were very few men in the world more seriously miserable than he was at this instant. A deep melancholy seized his mind, and cold, damp sweats overspread his person, so that he was scarce animated, and poor Amelia, instead of a fond, warm husband, bestowed her caresses on a dull, lifeless lump of clay. He endeavoured, however, at first, as much as possible, to conceal what he felt, and attempt what is the hardest of all tasks, to act the part of a happy man. But he found no supply of spirits to carry on this deceit, and would have probably sunk under his attempt, had not poor Amelia's simplicity helped him to another fallacy, in which he had much better success. This worthy woman very plainly perceived the disorder in her husband's mind, and having no doubt of the cause of it, especially when she saw the tears stand in his eyes at the sight of his children, threw her arms around his neck, and embracing him with rapturous fondness, cried out, My dear Billy, let nothing make you uneasy. Heaven will, I doubt not, provide for us and these poor babes. Great fortunes are not necessary to happiness. For my own part, I can level my mind with any state, and for those poor little things, whatever condition of life we breed them to, that will be sufficient to maintain them in. How many thousands abound in affluence, whose fortunes are much lower than ours, for it is not from nature, but from education and habit, that our wants are chiefly derived. Make yourself easy, therefore, my dear love, for you have a wife who will think herself happy with you and endeavour to make you so, in any situation. Fear nothing, Billy. Industry will always provide us a wholesome meal, and I will take care that neatness and cheerfulness shall make it a pleasant one. Booth presently took the cue which she had given him. He fixed his eyes on her for a minute, with great earnestness and inexpressible tenderness, and then cried, O oh, my Amelia, how much you are my superior in every perfection! How wise, how great, how noble are your sentiments! Why can I not imitate what I so much desire? 
why can I not look with your constancy on those dear little pledges of our lives? All my philosophy is baffled with the thought that my Amelia's children are to struggle with a cruel, hard, unfeeling world, and to buffet those waves of fortune which have overwhelmed their father. Here I own I want your firmness, and I am not without an excuse for wanting it. For am I not the cruel cause of all your wretchedness? Have I not stepped between you and fortune, and been the cursed obstacle to all your greatness and happiness? "'Say not so, my love,' answered she. "'Great I might have been, but never happy with any other man. "'Indeed, dear Billy, I laugh at the fears you formerly raised in me. "'What seemed so terrible at a distance, now it approaches nearer, "'appears to have been a mere bugbear. "'And let this comfort you, that I look on myself at this day as the happiest of women. "'Nor have I done anything which I do not rejoice in, "'and would, if I had the gift of prescience, do again.' Booth was so overcome with this behaviour that he had no words to answer. To say the truth, it was difficult to find any worthy of the occasion. He threw himself prostrate at her feet, whence poor Amelia was forced to use all her strength, as well as entreaties, to raise and place him in his chair. Such is ever the fortitude of perfect innocence, and such the depression of guilt in minds not utterly abandoned. Booth was naturally of a sanguine temper, nor would any such apprehensions as he mentioned have been sufficient to have restrained his joy at meeting with his Amelia. In fact, a reflection on the injury he had done her was the sole cause of his grief. This it was that enervated his heart, and threw him into agonies, which all that profusion of heroic tenderness that the most excellent of women intended for his comfort served only to heighten and aggravate as the more she rose in his admiration, the more she quickened his sense of his own unworthiness. After a disagreeable evening, the first of that kind that he had ever passed with his Amelia, in which he had the utmost difficulty to force a little cheerfulness, and in which her spirits were at length overpowered by discerning the oppression of his, they retired to rest, or rather to misery, which need not be described. The next morning at breakfast, Booth began to recover a little from his melancholy, and to taste the company of his children. He now first thought of inquiring of Amelia by what means she had discovered his place of confinement. Amelia, after gently rebuking him for not having himself acquainted her with it, informed him that it was known all over the country, and that she had traced the original of it to her sister, who had spread the news with a malicious joy, and added a circumstance which would have frightened her to death had not her knowledge of him made her give little credit to it, which was that he was committed for murder. But though she had discredited this part, she said the not hearing from him during several successive posts made her too apprehensive of the rest, that she got a conveyance therefore for herself and her children to Salisbury, from whence the stage-coach had brought them to town, and having deposited the children at his lodging, of which he had sent her an account on his first arrival in town, she took a hack, and came directly to the prison where she heard he was, and where she found him. Booth excused himself, and with truth, as to not having writ, for in fact he had writ twice from the prison, though he had mentioned nothing of his confinement. But as he sent away his letters after nine at night, the fellow to whom they were entrusted had burnt them, 
both for the sake of putting the two pence in his own pocket, or rather in the pocket of the keeper of the next gin-shop. As to the account which Amelia gave him, it served rather to raise than to satisfy his curiosity. He began to suspect that some person had seen both him and Miss Matthews together in the prison, and had confounded her case with his, and this the circumstance of murder made the more probable. But who this person should be he could not guess. After giving himself, therefore, some pains in forming conjectures to no purpose, he was forced to rest contented with his ignorance of the real truth. Two or three days now passed without producing anything remarkable, unless it were that Booth more and more recovered his spirits, and had now almost regained his former degree of cheerfulness, when the following letter arrived, again to torment him. Dear Billy, to convince you I am the most reasonable of women, I have given you up three whole days to the unmolested possession of my fortunate rival. I can refrain no longer from letting you know that I lodge in Dean Street, not far from the church, at the sign of the pelican and trumpet, where I expect this evening to see you. Believe me, I am with more affection than any other woman in the world can be, my dear Billy, your affectionate, fond, doting, F. Matthews. Booth tore the letter with rage, and threw it into the fire, resolving never to visit the lady more, unless it was to pay her the money she had lent him, which he was determined to do the very first opportunity, for it was not at present in his power. This letter threw him back into his fit of dejection, in which he had not continued long, when a packet from the country brought him the following from his friend Dr. Harrison. Sir, Lyons, January 21st, N.S. Though I am now on my return home, I have taken up my pen to communicate to you some news I have heard from England, which gives me much uneasiness, and concerning which I can indeed deliver my sentiments with much more ease this way than any other. In my answer to your last, I very freely gave you my opinion, in which it was my misfortune to disapprove of every step you had taken. But those were all pardonable errors. Can you be so partial to yourself, upon cool and sober reflection, to think what I am going to mention is so? I promise you it appears to me a folly of so monstrous a kind, that had I heard it from any but a person of the highest honour, I should have rejected it as utterly incredible. I hope you already guess what I am about to name since heaven forbid your conduct should afford you any choice of such gross instances of weakness. In a word, then, you have set up an equipage. What shall I invent in your excuse, either to others or to myself? In truth I can find no excuse for you, and what is more I am certain you can find none for yourself. I must deal therefore very plainly and sincerely with you. Vanity is always contemptible but when joined with dishonesty, it becomes odious and detestable. At whose expense are you to support this equipage? Is it not entirely at the expense of others? And will it not finally end in that of your poor wife and children? You know you are two years in arrears to me. If I could impute this to any extraordinary or common accident, I think I should never have mentioned it. But I will not suffer my money to support the ridiculous and I must say criminal vanity of any one. 
I expect, therefore, to find upon my return that you have either discharged my whole debt or your equipage. Let me beg you seriously to consider your circumstances and condition in life, and to remind you that your situation will not justify any the least unnecessary expense. Simply to be poor, says my favorite Greek historian, was not held scandalous by the wise Athenians, but highly so to owe that property to our own indiscretion. Present my affections to Mrs. Booth, and be assured that I shall not, without great reason, and great pain to, never cease to be your most faithful friend, R. Harrison. Had this letter come at any other time, it would have given Booth the most sensible affliction, but so totally had the affair of Miss Matthews possessed his mind, that like a man in the most raging fit of the gout, he was scarce capable of any additional torture. Nay, he even made a use of this latter epistle, as it served to account to Amelia for that concern which he really felt on the other account. The poor deceived lady, therefore, applied herself to give him comfort where he least wanted it. She said he might easily perceive that the matter had been misrepresented to the doctor, who would not, she was sure, retain the least anger against him when he knew the real truth. After a short conversation on this subject, in which Booth appeared to be greatly consoled by the arguments of his wife, they parted. He went to take a walk in the park, and she remained at home to prepare him his supper. He was no sooner departed than his little boy, not quite six years old, said to Amelia, "'La, mamma, what is the matter with poor papa? What makes him look so as if he is going to cry? He is not half so merry as he used to be in the country.' Amelia answered, Oh, my dear, your papa is only a little thoughtful. He will be merry again soon. Then, looking fondly on her children, she burst into an agony of tears, and cried, Oh, heavens, what have these poor little infants done? Why will the barbarous world endeavor to starve them, by depriving us of our only friend? Oh, my dear, your father is ruined, and we are undone. The children presently accompanied their mother's tears, and the daughter cried, why will anybody hurt poor papa? Hath he done any harm to anybody? No, my dear child, said the mother. He is the best man in the world, and therefore they hate him. Upon which the boy, who was extremely sensible at his years, answered, Nay, mamma, how can that be? Have not you often told me that if I was good everybody would love me? All good people will, answered she. Why don't they love papa, then? replied the child for I am sure he is very good. So they do, my dear, said the mother, but there are more bad people in the world, and they will hate you for your goodness. Why then, bad people, cries the child, are loved by more than the good. No matter for that, my dear, said she, the love of one good person is more worth having than that of a thousand wicked ones. Nay, if there was no such person in the world, Still you must be a good boy, for there is one in heaven who will love you, and his love is better for you than that of all mankind. This little dialogue, we are apprehensive, will be read with contempt by many. Indeed we should not have thought it worth recording, was it not for the excellent example which Amelia here gives to all mothers. This admirable woman never let a day pass without instructing her children in some lesson of religion and morality 
by which means she had, in their tender minds, so strongly annexed the ideas of fear and shame to every idea of evil of which they were susceptible, that it must require great pains and length of habit to separate them. Though she was the tenderest of mothers, she never suffered any symptom of malevolence to show itself in their most trifling actions without discouragement, without rebuke, and if it broke forth with any rancor, without punishment, in which she had such success that not the least mark of pride, envy, malice, or spite discovered itself in any of their little words or deeds. End of Book 4, Chapter 3